Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. Well, let's uh, open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, what I'd like to do today is talk to you just briefly on the topic of identity. And um, then um, I'll cut my message short. That's the goal. And then at the end, uh, Larry will come back and just play softly and candidly. Just want to give you some time to just sit uh, before the Lord and maybe listen to what he has to say. Um, So let's just dive right in. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This should be a passage that is familiar for, uh, for most of us. If not, that's okay. But it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. It's interesting. Remember, even the serpent was made by the Lord. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Verse 23, therefore, the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God speaks, he creates. He speaks the universe into existence. He saves his very breath for us, for he scoops up a mound of dirt. He breathes into it, and out of it comes humanity. And when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we see that the serpent that the Lord God made, who is in many ways, inhabited by, being used by the one who, according to Ezekiel 28, dwelt among the fiery stones long before mankind was created. His name is Lucifer. And the serpent, a type of, as well as a literal serpent, was used to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. And I would submit to you that the root of the temptation in many ways, is the root of all temptation. I certainly don't want to make a dogmatic, emphatic statement because I can't prove what I'm saying. I would just say it's, a, it's an educated guess, but a well-educated one at that. The first thing that Lucifer attacks is the identity of God. Did God really say? 
For we know on the pages of Scripture names, and especially in the Hebrew culture, but more than the Hebrew culture, in the Word of God, names carry with them an identity. And we know that the identity of God is inseparable from His Word. Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, according to John 1.14, became flesh and made His dwelling place among us. The identity of God is revealed in His Word. And the first thing the serpent does is to try to cast doubt on the Word of God, the identity of God, the voice of God. Did God really say? The second thing he seeks to cast doubt on is you are not who God says you are. God is not who he says he is, an attack on God's identity. You are not who God says you are, an an attack on their identity. It's interesting, in verse 5, he says, has God indeed said? In other words, he's saying God is not who he says he is. And then in verse 5, it says, you will be like God. For God knows, do you not know that if you eat the fruit from that tree, you will be like God? God. In other words, the serpent is saying, you are not who he says you are. How ironic is it that Lucifer says, you will be like God if you eat the fruit, but they were already like God. They were made in his image. How ironic is that? You are not who he says you are, and yet they were like God. The attack was first and foremost on identity, the identity of God, the identity of mankind. And after the fall, they did not become naked. They were naked before the fall. After the fall, they became ashamed of who they were. After the fall, who they were made them uncomfortable. After the fall, what they looked like made them uncomfortable. Nakedness did not come after the fall. Shame, because of their nakedness, came after the fall. In verse 5, the serpent said, you will be like God. I don't know about you, but this shows me what Lucifer thinks about God. It reminds me of the language used in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, descriptions that refer to what was going on in the heart of Lucifer in the, in the pre-fall. He looks at himself, and according to the text, it says, he looks at himself and he says, ah, I am like God. And he uses similar language with Adam and Eve. You will be like God. It shows me that Lucifer, this is how he views God. He thinks God is naked and ashamed. I think maybe we think Lucifer is saying, you'll ascend to be like God. I think Lucifer, who is cunning and crafty, instead he's saying, you will be like God. It is insightful. It is he views the sovereign one, the mighty one, as merely naked and ashamed. For you eat, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. Verse 8, it says that they heard God walking in the garden. A few weeks ago, I heard a communicator, Erwin McManus, make this statement. I think it's profound. They heard God walking in the garden, and then they heard his voice. Adam and Eve 
not only knew the sound of God's voice, they knew the sound of God's steps. They were so close to God that they knew the sound of his footprint on the ground of the garden. They knew it was not a T-Rex. Yes, even the T-Rex was in the garden. How do you know that, Heath? Well, because the animals did not die before the fall. They were in the garden. It was not a brontosaurus. It was not a hippopotamus. They knew the sound of God's steps. He was walking through the garden, and they heard his sound, not only of his steps, but of his voice, and how ironic is it that God comes up to them, and the first thing God says is not, I can't believe you ate the fruit, now death has entered the world. I can't believe you ate the fruit, now sickness has entered the world. The first thing he says is, who told you you were naked? You know, it's interesting that up to that point, they were naked. But God did not see fit to tell them they were naked because it was inconsequential. It was irrelevant because even though they were naked, they were created in his image. But after the fall, being created in the image of God is no longer enough. For after the fall, now who we are, and even more important than that, who he says we are is not enough. We become ashamed and embarrassed. And the first thing on the heart of God is, who told you you were naked? The first thing on the heart of God in the garden is, who is trying to speak into your identity beyond what I have already declared over you? That is God's first and foremost, his primary concern. First and foremost, your identity is being shaped by a voice other than mine. Who told you you were naked? And God in his mercy closed them. Even though to God their nakedness does not bother him, to them their nakedness bothers them, and God in his mercy loves them. Wow. And in verse 23 through 24, it tells us this, that a flaming sword was placed. Can I read it to you again? It says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. Do you remember what happens? God, God in his mercy loves them. But there are consequences to the fall. The serpent is cursed, and Adam and Eve will now eat the fruit from the seeds that have been planted. And God places a flaming sword, and it says this, He sent them out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken, so he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to what? the tree of life. God did not place a sword to guard the way from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He placed a sword to guard the way from the tree of life. For what the serpent says is true. If you eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be, quote, like God, even though they were already like God. But the tree of life God knew, had they ventured back into the garden 
and plucked fruit off of the tree of life and ate of that fruit in their state, they would have been eternally damned from God. The sword was not a sword of judgment. It was a sword of mercy. God did not place the sword there to keep them from going back in the garden as if to say, oh, good luck with that. You blew it. You can never come back into paradise. God placed the sword there so that they would not eat the fruit from the tree of life and find themselves eternally damned. It was a sword not of judgment. I would submit to you, and this is up for debate for the scholars in the room, I would submit to you it was a sword of mercy. But God did not place a sword in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's interesting to me. And the issue of identity, after it started in Genesis chapter 3, resurfaces time and time again on the pages of both history and the pages of eternity. I'll give you two examples. Do you remember Genesis? I believe it's chapter 32. We come across somebody named Jacob, the deceiver. The one who was asked by his dad, who are you? My name is Esau. And he stole his brother's birthright. He lied. He denied who he was, for who he was was not enough to get what he thought he needed. And he lied. I wonder how often we deny who we are and we pretend to be somebody we are not so that we can obtain the promise. And in Genesis 32, long after Jacob the deceiver lied, denied his identity, he encounters God. And what question does God ask him? The same question his earthly father asked him. God asked, who are you? And this time, Jacob doesn't lie. He doesn't say Esau. He says, my name is Jacob. And God says, from now on, you'll no longer be Jacob. Do you remember the story? He comes face to face with his destiny only after he acknowledges who he really is. God asked, who are you? We find God asking the same question again in numerous passages, but the second one I'll cite is in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus, blown 13 miles off course from the storm on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, he comes to the region known as Decapolis, the ten cities, Gadara, and the Gadarene demoniac. Do you remember the story in Mark chapter 5? He comes running to Jesus. He runs to Jesus, and what's the first question Jesus asks him? Who are you? In Mark chapter 5, the Gadarene demoniac, we see the apex of somebody who does not know who they are. He is not talking to the demons. Tell me your name, please. Jesus is not concerned. And Jesus already knows the gentleman's name. How many of you know, sometimes God asks, who are you? Not because he doesn't know who we are. Just like in Genesis chapter 3, God asks, where are you? God knew where they were. Sometimes he asks, where are you and who are you, even though he knows the answer, because those questions are more for our benefit than they are for his. Genesis 32, God asks, who are you? Mark chapter 5, God asks, what is your name? And I would submit to you that he asks all of us the same question today. Who are you? And what is your name? And can I ask you this question? Can God even recognize you anymore? Or is who you pretend to be so far from who he created you to be that it's so difficult to recognize? The issue of identity is at the core of much of what we face. You come to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. I alluded to it yesterday. This message in chapel was born out of a statement 
to be honest with you, that came out of my mouth yesterday that I never really thought about. So I went back to my room late last night after I went to the treadmill and ran my brains out and decided to think about it. Matthew chapter 3, we talked about it yesterday briefly, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descend upon him like a dove. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father does not speak something to him that is directional. The Father does not speak something to him that is instructional. The Father speaks something to a Son that is relational. Heaven cracks open and says, You are my son. Heaven places a premium on our identity. So much so to where as soon as the Father establishes the identity of Jesus, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. It was identity that prepared Jesus to endure and withstand the temptation. It was identity. I would submit to you that it is our identity, even this day, that will allow us to endure and withstand the temptations that come. Knowing who we are, before we preach the sermon, before we perform a miracle, Jesus has his identity affirmed before he does any of that. Many of us, today even, need our identity to be affirmed long before we do anything. Because for some of us, what we do is so closely tied to who we are that we can no longer see clearly anymore. For some of you need to hear, this is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is pleased in you long before you do anything. And he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted. And he leaves the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. How interesting is it that in Matthew chapter 4, after, towards the end of the temptation of Jesus, what does the evil one tempt Jesus with? I'd like you to look. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. I'd like to read it to you. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God. Do you remember that? Three times, if you are the Son of God. Three times he tries to cast doubt on what God just spoke audibly to Jesus. How does the devil seek to sabotage the purpose of God? Does he send an attractive prostitute into the wilderness? Well, we know that Jesus was tempted in every way. We know that Jesus was tempted with homosexual thoughts. We know that Jesus was tempted with heterosexual thoughts. We know that Jesus was tempted to embezzle money. We know that Jesus was tempted to murder somebody. According to the Word of God, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. But the devil himself becomes personally involved when it comes to the topic of identity. If you are the Son of God, the very thing that God himself spoke over his son, the evil one seeks to cast doubt on him. How foolish is this? For Jesus knew he, who he was. Remember, he was there at creation. In the beginning was the word. We can infer from the text that Jesus is uniquely involved in the creation of everything. Jesus was, according to Revelation, I believe it's chapter 13. If it's not, I apologize, but it's somewhere. 
Jesus was the lamb slain for sinners since before the foundation of the world. That means that the cross was not plan B. The cross was plan A all along. Jesus was the lamb slain for sinners since before the foundation of the world. Be not mistaken. Jesus knew who he was. And yet, even then, Lucifer himself comes to tempt Jesus, and he uses identity. I would submit to you that the issue of identity is how hell tries to take the purpose of God that will endure, and he tries to kill it. It's over the issue of identity. And identity is still the primary attack. So who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you weren't forgiven? I can assure you it wasn't God. Who told you you weren't beautiful? I can assure you that wasn't God. Who told you you weren't worth it? Who told you you weren't important? Who told you that after you repented that you weren't made pure again? Who told you you weren't smart enough? I can assure you it wasn't God. Who told you that you would not be provided for? Who told you you've gone too far and His mercy ran out? Who told you your dream was not possible? Who told you you were destined to be alone? I can assure you it wasn't God. So who are you? In order to discover who you are, Colossians chapter 3 gives us a clue. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Who are you? What is your identity? Your identity has little to do with what you do. And I would submit to you, your identity has nothing to do with who you are. Your identity has everything to do with who you belong to. And the one you belong to, you're formed in His image. And if you want to solve the issue of identity, you have to access his world. Because who you are is not here. Who you are is there. And you died, and your life is hidden in Christ with God. And the closer you get to him, you begin to look into his eyes And his eyes rage with fire. And the closer you get to him, you begin to see your reflection clearly. 
The Apostle Paul tells us now we see dimly as in a mirror. But when you get close to his face, you see clearly. And I would submit to you the time you spend with him in prayer and worship and the word and community and just in your coming and in your going. As you learn to get close to him, you see your reflection in his eyes. And that is who you are. Identity may not be everything, but Lucifer sure thought it was important. That's why he attacked the identity of God. He attacked the identity of Adam and Eve, and that was the primary strategy he used to try to distract Jesus from what he was destined to do. Let's think that he will not attempt anything less in your life. So who told you? What I want to do today is Larry's going to come, and he's just going to tickle the keys a bit. I want to give you an opportunity to approach him. We've, we've built in time to approach him and to, I apologize for speaking metaphorically, but to gaze into his eyes and see a reflection of who you really are. Because apart from Christ, you'll never find out. Because who you are is hidden in Christ. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's a bit mystical, but it's Bible. You're not here. You're there. And if you want to solidify your identity, you access his world to discover who you are. Now we see that prayer takes on a different role. Maybe just maybe the purpose of prayer is not to get the answer. Maybe the purpose of prayer is to discover who we really are by gazing in his eyes and seeing our reflection so that we become who we were destined to become so that we can inherit the answer. I'm going to ask you to stand. So just this morning, as the Holy Spirit is just whispering to your heart, who told you? Who told you that? And I would say that today God is asking you as he's walking through the garden and you're hearing the sound of his voice and even more so you're hearing the sound of his steps. He's asking you, student, he's asking you faculty, he's asking you staff because this is an issue we all deal with. He's asking you, who told you that? Who told you? So in a moment at the right time, you're more than happy to slip out. We have, we have a few minutes built in. Just want to give you time. Just gaze into his eyes and ask him who you are. And answer the question, who told you? Who told you that about yourself? So why don't you find a place? You can stay where you're at. You can kneel. You can lay down. You can come up here. But I'm going to ask you to discover who you are in the next five, ten minutes. To access his world and see a reflection of who you really are in his eyes. Jesus. I'm just going to speak prophetically for the next few minutes so you can ignore me. 
For some of you, you don't know who you are because of the abuse you endured. Today, God asked you, who told you that? Who told you that? For some of you, you grew up in homes where things were declared over you. Today, God says, who, who told you that? I didn't tell you that. Who are you? God, I ask you to come and just come close enough to us, God, so that we can gaze into your eyes and see a reflection of who we are. God, we believe that in your mercy you're coming our way and you're asking us, who told you that? Who told you you were naked and ashamed? Who told you that who you are in me is not enough? I pray that pieces of identity that have been lost would be found today. I pray that things that have attached themselves to some of us about who we are and who we are not, that you did not decree over us, that those things would fall away. And I pray for those who seriously in this moment are struggling with who you created them to be and with who they are, God, that you would come and whisper to them who they are. In Jesus' name, amen.